Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Lydia Millay is the author of Dinosaurs. Lydia has written more than a dozen novels and story collections. Her novel, A Children's Bible, was a New York Times Best 10 Books of 2020 selection and shortlisted for the National Book Award. In 2019, her story collection, Fight No More, received an award of merit from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. And her collection, Love and Infant Monkeys, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2010. She writes essays, opinion pieces, book reviews, and other ephemera, and has worked as an editor and staff writer at the Center for Biological Diversity since 1999. She lives in the desert outside Tucson with her family. Welcome, Lydia. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Dinosaurs, a novel. Well, I'm happy to be here. And of course, Dinosaurs is referring to the fact that we all, when we were growing up, People thought dinosaurs were gone 
extinct. And now since then, we've realized that birds are a form of dinosaur, which I learned in science class with my kids, <laughs> but which you obviously weave in through the book uh, as well. So interesting way to, to package. <laughs> yeah, I feel I learned it pretty late in life. Yeah. But you know what? That's okay. We can always learn. <laughs> right, right. We should never stop. Never we should stop never Yes, exactly. (laughs) So can you please tell listeners what Dinosaurs is about? Oh, well, it's a pretty simple story. It's about a man who's quite lonely and heartbroken and moves across the country and then finds himself living next to a house with a big glass wall through which he can see his his next door neighbors. And, you know, his life becomes sort of enmeshed in their lives. And that's that's it. That's basically it. That is not it. There's so much more than that. <laughs> okay, I'll, we can leave it at that. Um, well, first of all, he doesn't just move to the West Coast. He walks to the West Coast. Is this like something you've always wondered what that would be like? Or how did how did you start it off like that? Well, it was sort of a, I'm, first of all, it was sort of a theft from my boyfriend's life because he did this before he moved West to live with me from Brooklyn. He walked the Appalachian Trail, like the whole Appalachian Trail. And so so I sort of, yeah, I sort of stole that fragment of his life and made it a little different, fictionalized it a little bit. Because, of course, Gil, who's the who's the protagonist in this novel, doesn't walk an actual trail. He just walks across the country sort of adjacent to freeways and, and other large roads. And, yeah, I don't spend a lot of pages on that, but I wanted to use it because, yeah, because he he's a person for whom there was no cost really to anything because he he's rich. And so he, in this situation, wanted to sort of pay for, for this change in his life. And the only way he could pay was with his time and, and his body, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's always one of those things where the, my kids are like, could you walk across here? How long would it take? Blah, blah. So anyway, I like that <laughs> just a device to get us into this book. And then of course, Gil ends up in a house that he has only seen online (laughs) and doesn't realize that he's looking into somebody else's house. And I also loved how you had the neighbors come over and say, like, to call it out. Because I feel like so often, I mean, I've been looking into, in my mom's apartment, the same house for like 40 plus years, right? And you never say anything to this neighbor. So the fact that she's like, okay, I understand it's you can't help but look at me and, and that's okay. And I'm aware that you're looking. It just like throws that whole thing that you're not supposed to sort of say up into conversation. Right. So tell me, tell me about that and just like starting it off that way. Well, he he just the the people that he's next to happen to be this kind of lovely family. And um there's a very, very outgoing woman at the core of the family, and she just sort of embraces him and yeah, and sort of and I guess in a way sort of lures him into their sphere like very early on, which is, which is highly fortunate for him as it turns out. Yes. <laughs> but so this good. like, you know, idea of, I, I was trying to play with sort of the idea that we're all voyeurs now in our lives, that, that there's so much voyeurs in the culture now. And there's so much, so much spectatorship of each other and display of ourselves that it's almost as though voyeurism has disappeared as a taboo, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, it's barely considered, you know, criminal or an infringement to, to stare at other people because we do it all day long, right? These, with these little screens we have and big screens too, but we're always looking and being looked at. And so, yeah, yeah. So this, so, so there's this very literal sort of translation of that 
sort of universal act of cultural voyeurism that we're engaged in now in this story. Very true. I feel like maybe this is a reach, but I feel like you were also trying to say something with Gil attempting to give back and not knowing and being sort of stopped at every, at every turn when he's looking for a meaningful way to get to engage with people who he can help in some way. And even from potentially being too good looking to help in a women's shelter. And just, he keeps getting rebuffed when he tries so hard. It's like, you'd think it would be so easy. Just like, let me help. So tell me about even, even that, how sometimes wanting to help and actually helping, uh, there are a lot of obstacles you have to overcome. Yeah. I think it's really hard to sort of insert yourself into a community and know how to contribute for, for, for all of us, really, not just for people in Gil's sort of privileged position, but it's, it can be strangely hard to quote, do something right. And there's this kind of membrane that exists between us and our personal lives and the vast world outside them. And it's really hard to can sort of like push against it and not be able to, to cross over, you know, into that into that community. It's just, it's such a lonely place sometimes, the, the, the postmodern world. You know, it's just a hard place to penetrate at times. And, um, and Gil isn't satisfied by, you know, giving to charities. He needs to feel that he's doing something more, more real and more tactile, almost, I guess, more tangible. You do it all with this like great witty sense of humor where like they're like, okay, oh, now you're gonna be a, a male escort. And Gil like quietly looks around. Does nobody find this funny? <laughs> I mean you wrote it much better than that, but it just I love I love it. It's like all these winks to the to the reader and we're just like chuckling along with you. It's great. Oh good. Yeah, that sort of wryness of him was part of why I wrote the book. It's kind of a you know, character study of this this person that just sort of I wanted to live with for a while. This kind of kind, kind and sometimes ineffectual man. Interesting. You also do such a nice job of developing a male friendship, which I feel like it does not get written about at hardly ever. <laughs> like, certainly not enough, right? Because men have their own really beloved bonds, and 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 they they can be formed in funnier ways and just by, you know, Gil and, and his good friend Lefavre. Is that how you pronounce it? You think? <laughs> oh, what is this? God, now I'm forgetting Lefavre, his name. Yeah. And how he sees all these sides of him as, as a man and how he curses all the time when he's like playing basketball and yet around his wife is like as sweet as an angel. And, you know, what ends up happening with, with them over time is really impactful and emotional. So that was great. Can you talk a little bit about friendship and, and how that plays out in, in later life. Yeah, I'd, I've noticed that, you know, so many men have, over a certain age, have these sort of truncated social lives that are entirely dependent on their partners, mm-hmm. you know, especially sort of, I'm going to say heterosexual men of a certain age, you know, seem to really be isolated and lonely for friendship. And and so Gil is, a, I guess, sort of a counterexample to that, where he has these just a couple, right? A couple of close friendships. And, you know, I, I don't know. I there, there have been times in my adult life where I felt quite bad for men because their social circles can be so constrained, you know, can be so determined by their jobs. I mean, as all of ours are, are to some degree, right? But like really constrained by their wives or girlfriends or other partners and their social circles and then their jobs. And if they lose those things, they're sort of often quite marooned. 
So Gil actually has neither of those things in the beginning of the, he doesn't have a partner, right? And he doesn't have a job. And so like, how do you find, how do you find friendship is, is really just a sort of basic question of, of his story. And how he relates to the kids too, what it means to like have found family and the big influence he ends up having on the next door neighbor's kids and the bonds he makes with them, which is really wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Lydia, how did you, I know you said you were interested in exploring Gil as a man, but you've written many books at this point in your life. And why, like, how did you start this? What little germ of an idea was, got you started on this book and sort of what was, what kept you going? What what was propelling you? And tell me just more of the backstory of the book. Well, I'd just written this other book that was quite different, a children's Bible that was about anger and also sort of a righteous anger, but also featured this large group of young people and a sort of large, for me, cast of characters. Mm-hmm. And, and so I started out this book wanting, as I usually do between books, to do something entirely different from that and just have a very small cast of characters. Yeah. For one thing that I could sort of get a handle on and where I could really differentiate the characters well, because in a children's Bible, there's this sort of amorphous mass of parents that is undifferentiated, almost like a mob of parents. And so I I sort of wanted to write from the other side of that, you know, looking at people my age and how they might actually sometimes be more benevolent (laughs) than the parents were in, in a children's Bible. So that was part of it. And Yeah, I wanted to, I just was sort of entranced by the idea of a simple story that kind of opened up like a dollhouse does, Mm -hmm. so that you can see, you know, the rooms and the the sort of, what do you call it when it's, you know, when you have those dollhouses and they open and then you've got this. Diorama. Yeah, I love dioramas too, so it's sort of like a diorama as well, but what would it be like to have that kind of living a dollhouse that was sort of living to engage with, you know? Yeah. I love that. So how did you get started writing? How do you go from not writing to Pulitzer Prize? No, I mean, all these things like nominations and, and accolades and new books and, and a whole lifetime of how did you get started and, and what's the secret to sort of navigating life as a working author? Well, you know, I just, I think I just came to it from reading. I was just a voracious reader as a kid. And so it was kind of a natural thing for me to end up doing because you, as many writers have said, you kind of write the stories that you want to read or that you haven't quite found and and want to, to inhabit uh, for a while. So also, I have to admit that I, at a certain juncture in my life in college, discovered that I did not wish to be an opera singer, which I had been trying to be. <laughs> I sort of discovered that that was not um, a pursuit for which I was fit. And, you know, I, lo- I love the solitude of writing and I love uh, the fact that, at least in book writing, no one really interferes with you or your process until you've already made something, right? And unlike, say, you know, the collaborative world of making movies or TV or maybe other sorts of books to some degree that aren't that aren't fiction. You're just allowed to have perfect mental freedom. And I love that and value that, that sort of refuge of privacy of of making things up. And so it's always where I'm happiest. I'm happiest when I'm writing sentences that no one else gets to weigh in on. <laughs> you know? Yes. It's like the ultimate control. <laughs> 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I, and I do have, um, I can't sort of write infinitely in a day. So I have a day job that is, you know, it's about 30 hours a week and keeps me busy from like 8.30 to 2.30 every day. And then I write like for an hour before that in the morning and I write for an hour and a half at night after it's done. And that's all I want. I don't think I could write for longer than that in a day. That's like, that is pretty much my quota. Um, So I'm lucky now that I've sort of being able to fix up a schedule where I have these discrete pieces of time to write in. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because... Even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. What is your day job? Can I ask? My day job is, yeah, as an editor and writer at a nonprofit called the Center for Biological Diversity. And we do lots of work on climate change and lots of work on on, uh, endangered species, trying to stop critters and plants and trees from going extinct. You subtly mentioned climate change a few times in in dinosaurs. I feel like you're it, now. I understand. I'm not that it's not that it's unique to you. Obviously, we're all concerned with climate change, but you know how it how it sneaks in, and I'm sure your work sort of bleeds over. It's sort of in the background. It was more foregrounded in the book before this, but you can't always obsess over over these looming threats. Sometimes you have to sort of just step back into. Uh, more meditative, you know, space around them. And so what do you like to do when you're not working and writing? 
Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I, I mostly am working or writing. I like to walk. I, I live in the desert and I like to hike. I don't always get enough time for it. But from my my house is kind of in this little enclave in a national park with lots of cacti and, you know, those tall saguaros that you see on Looney Tunes. So I, I can actually walk right out of my house and just walk into the national park. And I love that. And I love as Gil does in the book, watching the the birds in my yard and the critters. You know, I used to be quite bored of birds when I was young, and and now I'm not bored of them at all. Maybe <laughs> it's partly the pandemic also really made me appreciate the position of just watching wildlife outside in this kind of stillness. And um, I still I still like to do that. Just look at the critters through my window, and yeah. So that's something I don't know. I like to drink wine with friends, I guess. Um, <laughs> I like I read all the time. Recently, I read a lot of nonfiction because I've all of a sudden started to feel a few years, two or three years ago or four, maybe that I just would never know enough. Like I would never, I would never know even a small fraction of what there is to know. And so I've started reading much more <laughs> nonfiction than I used to just in an attempt to, I guess, improve myself. <laughs> so I do that. Awesome. And I interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, the acclaimed scientist and everything. He was like, I figured out how much time it would take for me to read all these books, to learn all these things. And I realized I could never do that. So I had to focus on this. And like, he took it apart as like how much learning, how much nonfiction, how much could he take in given the time he had? And he made it into a whole equation, which I just thought was awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't make it with like input yeah. versus output, right? How much more can we learn? And versus putting out into the world ourselves. Yeah, no, it is because it is you do have to stop and actually make your own thing. If you're a writer, you can't just sort of endlessly read. And also there's an exhaustion, I think, sometimes with with reading nonfiction, at least for me, even if it's really brilliant and good. I just it's like when you walk through a museum, like an art museum or something, and you just have this sort of overload and you just can't see anymore after a while and you. You just have to kind of wander back outside. So I have that a bit with with nonfiction. Have you ever gotten to a point in a novel, like halfway, a third of the way, or any, you know, and just been like, this is just not working. I, I have to abandon this project or starting over from scratch. Oh, yeah. How far have you gotten after you've abandoned? Yeah, I think I've I've done whole books that I've virtually abandoned. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, certainly like when I was young, I did that. There were many books that I wrote before my first one was published that are thankfully no longer in existence in any form. Um, so now it's more like I just sort of start again if something is failing. Recently, I had a book, a manuscript, I guess I should say, because it's not published, that I had written a few years ago and no one really liked, and I didn't understand why. So I put it aside for a few years, and then I went back to it, and I didn't like it either. And I was like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I decided to do this kind of crazy thing where I would just write it again from scratch without looking at the original draft and see if I could write something sort of in, inspired similarly and with some similar benchmarks, but but really without even looking at the previous draft. And I, did, I was able to come up with something that I liked a lot better. It still hasn't seen the light of day, by the way. But so <laughs> sometimes it's just a question of like, I don't know, reconceiving. Interesting. Are there topics that you're excited still to address that you haven't somehow managed to in, in your work so far or something that's sort of glimmering to you from afar? Mm, that's a really good 
question. I don't know if there are topics as such. It's more that there are new ways to approach old things, you know, that I think are sort of lurking out there that I hope to touch upon one day. You know, it's like new ways. It's more new ways and new tones and new forms than new content, if you know what I mean. I think it would be interesting to turn dinosaurs into a play. You thought about that? Oh, wow. Better you than me. (laughs) No, I can't do that. (laughs) But I think it would be interesting to watch. I mean, well, it is kind of a, it is sort of like a, you could see it sort of on a stage because it's such a, there is a stage in the book, right? So there's, and because there's not a lot of, you know, it's pretty pared down in terms of, there wouldn't have to be CGI. Right. You know? Yes. <laughs> no special effects required. So that's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so when people hear your name, what do you want them to think? Like what type of writer, what do you want them to say about you? Oh my God. I've never, this is like a job interview where you have to describe yourself in one word. I'm really something. sorry. I, you know, <laughs> maybe it's my lack of sleep where I'm like asking all these random questions. You can, I'm okay. sorry. I, <laughs> I apologize. No, it's not random. It's a, actually, it's a, Good question. I just don't know the answer. I think that I don't think in terms of what people should or could think about me. I just always think of it in terms of books and and books of mine being read or read a certain way. I'd like to sort of, you know, ideally I wouldn't really be present at all. <laughs> you know, like I, this is why I recently I, I wrote a nonfiction book that's sort of like a hybrid of memoir and and meditation and maybe like prayer around sort of having children in this time and in the age of extinction and climate and all that. And I found it incredibly hard because I had to be a character in it. And I'm not used to writing that way. Much harder than fiction where I get to disappear. I mean, I think the great thing about writing fiction is that you get to disappear without disappearing, you know? So like it is you, it is of you, but you don't have to parade yourself through it. Right. Cause it's just intrinsically other. And I love that about fiction. You mentioned your boyfriend earlier, and this is totally none of my business, but I had, before I married my second husband, I was in my forties saying like, this is my boyfriend, you know? And I felt so funny saying that, you know, like, is it still a boyfriend when you're like a grown up? I know. I, I struggle with that all the time. Sometimes I say partner. I, I just, I don't know, but that always sounds kind of corporate to me also. So I'm just, there's no good word. I feel it's a problem. It's kind of a problem of language, right? Yeah. So what do you, what did you, so now you can say husband, which no, is I, easier. It is. Yeah. That's why I did it. Right. I just didn't want to keep calling him a boyfriend. So I said, we just should get married. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I, if I'm talking to like, um, someone in a service transaction or something like that, I'll just say husband because I feel then they will give me more credit (laughs) or him, or I won't have to like qualify the boyfriend thing or be, or the partner thing or whatever word I choose to use. Sometimes it's just easier to say husband for sure. (laughs) Even if it's a lie, right? (laughs) Who cares? cares. They'll never see me again. You know, (laughs) I agree. Yeah. Well, when you come up with the right word, (laughs) <laughs> let me know oh likewise please please i'm the one who needs it i'm the, you don't need it anymore oh, but still it'll be nice to throw it out to the universe <laughs> yeah yeah yes 
Okay, so what's the next book that's going to come out from you? Are you going to publish the one about the memoir? Yeah, I hope so. I think I'm not not quite sure because I have a book of short stories that's almost done as well. And, and so I'm not sure which will come out first. That's to some degree up to my publisher, Norton. But I love writing short stories and I... I always do it to sort of entertain myself kind of between longer projects. And so I have that. And then I have this nonfiction thing. And then I have a novel, too, that I'm working on because I always have that because I love novels so much, you know. So we'll see. That's, yeah, that is not yet known to me. Still a lot of exciting things. So what is yeah. your, what is your advice for aspiring authors? Well, first, it's always, I mean, this is boring, but it's always just to read it's to read a lot, you know, and read like beyond your comfort zone, read things that you haven't read before. I think that really helped me like in my early, in my early twenties, after I got out of, you know, I finished college and stuff. I started reading books that weren't canonical and, or that were, but they were outside my like range of experience or whatever. And, and they could be tough to start with, but when I just soldiered on, they gave me a lot. And, you know, they expanded my conception of what good writing was and and what I wanted to do with writing and all that. So I would always just say read and then, and I, I guess I would just say, make sure you love what you're doing when you write, you know, never do something because you think you should always do what you love. Excellent advice. That's for life in general. <laughs> yes. If possible. Yeah, if possible. exactly. Well, Lydia, thank you so much. It was so nice to chat with you today. Thanks for chatting early in the morning um, about dinosaurs. And it was just really nice to get to know you. Yeah, you too. It was truly a pleasure. I hope we get to raise a glass one day. That would be nice. My mom actually lives in Arizona, so I'm there quite a bit. Really? Where? She lives outside Scottsdale. Okay. Yeah. So it's probably like an hour and a half from where I am. Something like that. I will be there in May. I'm speaking at the Mom 2.0 conference. Do you know about that? Oh, cool. No, you no. Tell me it. about it a bit. You should speak. It's really? Like, so close. Yes. I'm going to put you in touch. Well, I, okay. before I offer you up, I was going to say, I'll put yeah, you in touch with organizers. But, um, yeah, that sounds really fun, actually. Yeah. It's, uh, I think, May 10th, 8th through 10th. May 8th through 10th. Yeah, I'll be around then. That's before we go to Maine for the summer. So, yeah, I'll totally be around. Oh. So do. Okay, yeah. I'm going to put you in touch. Okay. So maybe yeah. I'll see you Okay. Then. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> All right. Have a great day. (laughs) Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.